0: Welcome to the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Vanessa Siren Mahan. She served in the Air Force as a, a weapons system officer, which I learned about because even though I served in the Air Force, I don't know a lot about the flying side. So it was really interesting to hear her experience. And I loved how she talked about how the military gave her confidence and a firm foundation to kind of break out of her shell and to serve in the military for 10 years and, and now be a speaker and run her own business helping people in their fitness journey so it's another great episode and i can't wait for you to listen You are listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Vanessa served in the U.S. Air Force on active duty for 10 years as a weapons system officer, electronic warfare officer, and the F-15E Strike Eagle. She completed back-to-back deployments supporting Operation Enduring Freedom and flew over a hundred combat missions. She also flew with the Navy in the EA 6B Prowler. Currently, she is serving in the Air Force Reserves and she also owns her own fitness and health coaching business. She is a motor motivational speaker with a group called Athena's Voice, works part-time at the local CrossFit gym, and is a mom of two and a military spouse. Welcome to the show. I'm excited to hear about your experience.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Let's start with why did you decide to join the Air Force? In a simple, short answer,
1: it was for the money. And by that I mean, I needed a scholarship to attend a university that wasn't super close to my home. I wanted to go away to school. And so I thought a military scholarship would be my best chance. And it's exactly what happened. I got a four year scholarship for meteorology at Purdue University.
0: So, did you, you had to apply for the scholarship when you were a senior? How did that process go?
1: Yeah. So, senior year, a recruiter comes in and starts talking about the Air Force. And I went and saw him as you do when you're a senior, and the colleges come by and other people recruiting come by. And I liked what he was saying. Plus, I have a lot of family members my dad, uncle, uh, grandparents that served in the military. So, it kind of seemed like the good path. Plus, I had really no idea what I wanted to do with my life. You know, I grew up with my sister who knew at the age of four she was going to be a veterinarian. And for me, it, my career changed all the time, depending on, I guess, my age. For a while, I wanted to be a hairdresser, and then I wanted to be a shrink, and then I just had no idea. So military seemed like a good path to go on.
0: Did you do ROTC? I did. Okay. And when I was doing ROTC, if you got a four-year, you got like a year where you could try it out. Did you have a similar type of commitment or...? We did. So you have your first year,
1: basically, well, I guess that first, yeah, the first year where you could try it out. And there was a time where right before school started, I almost backed out because it was like, ah, what am I getting myself into? Is this something that I really want to do? So I almost backed out and I didn't take the scholarship, but I decided, well, if anything, I'll get that free year. And then turns out I loved it, every single bit of it, and decided to stick with it. Still am.
0: That's what I like about ROTC is the reserve officer training Corps program is that you can have that flexibility of trying it out and maybe it makes the military seem less scary but for me it was the same thing I was a little iffy on if this was the right thing but then once I started I was like oh this is where I need to be this is what you know everything fit and I really liked it
1: yeah you kind of find your tribe
0: yeah Exactly. What was the process of at the end of ROTC, you start to pick your job. So what did you end up, what What did you end up doing? So my, my major was in meteorology and I did
1: not like that major at all. I was toying with the idea of joining Combat Weather, but I think at the time they weren't allowing women to jump and do all the fun things that Combat Weather folks could do. And so I decided it would be super awesome to fly jets, but my eyes were so bad and that's before they approved PRK, so corrective eye surgery. And so the next best thing was to take a strike navigator slot and, and I did. And so I ended up getting that and then being sent to Naval Air Station Pensacola for training. So we did some joint training with the Navy down there.
0: That's really cool. And what year was it that that all that happened? Oh, gosh. Um, So I graduated college
1: in December of 2002. Yes, I just dated myself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I graduated high school in 2002, so you're not that much Oh, okay. (laughs) But when I interview people who are much younger than me, I'm like, oh, I'm so old. (laughs) I know. (laughs) So women had been allowed to be in the fighter community for about 10 years then, right? That's right. Yep. What was it like to be in that community and go through the training? Uh, Well, flight school was a mix of a lot of different backgrounds from Navy aircraft to
1: Air Force aircraft, so it was a joint training environment. I will say that as is, is awesome as I did in ROTC, I did and felt so not awesome in flight school. It was really hard for me. I think it was a lot of self-induced stress where I felt like I had to perform as good, if not better, than my male counterparts to show that I did belong there. And I earned that slot. It wasn't just given to me. I wasn't just there to fill a quota. And then it wasn't... It didn't click as well all the flight training the academics didn't click as well as i had hoped either so that was a struggle and then i had a medical issue that was unexplained it was they ended up coining the term or calling it eustachian tube dysfunction basically anytime on randomly not even if i was sick or anything randomly on takeoffs or landing. I would get so much pressure built up in my eardrums that my head felt like it was going to explode. Um, So that was very distracting during flights where you're graded and you're supposed to perform. So it made it very challenging to get through. I ended up being what they call DNIF for a while, that's duties not to include flying. I received some treatments, I ended up having surgery, I was trying to do all these things to alleviate that random pain that I would get because I just, I needed to I needed to finish flight school. I was in college when 9-11 happened and, you know, right then you just want to go and help and, and fight terrorism. But I knew I had to, I needed to finish college so I had to wait a little bit. And when I went to flight school, I knew that I wanted to fly in combat and I wanted to support our troops as they were out there fighting terrorism on the ground. I wanted to fight it in the skies. And it was... Uh, really hard to get through flight school with all that stuff happening and at that time the military was also overmanned so they were letting people leave the military with with no requirement to pay back the scholarship and so I had an out an easy out but I I just couldn't do it I had finished flight school I was going to go to combat no matter how much my head hurt (laughs) and So eventually I got my wings.
0: Was the surgery able to get rid of that problem? No,
1: I think it helped a little bit, but I just, not that I encourage people to do this, but I just kind of powered through the pain and, you know, different airplanes affected it differently. I think via their pressurization schedule and what kind of oxygen system that they had on board also affected it, but I I just kind of powered through the pain and eventually it seemed to get better and then every once in a while it would rear its ugly head again but that's you know i think why or the benefit of being in the back seat being goose so i didn't have control of the airplane so if it did happen it wasn't like oh no i have to fly and land the plane as well so that was that was a blessing that i actually did not get the pilot slot that i was the backseater
0: So you finally were able to get your wings, and then what happened next? So next we go to your combat
1: aircraft, and first you start in a a training squadron, and you train, and then you end up in your, your combat squadron. And I was in the 335th Fighter Squadron. We were the chiefs, and they were just an awesome group of folks. You know, talk about finding your tribe. They were great. It was mostly men that I worked with. There was one other female air crew there. But when we deployed, I ended up being the only, you know, air crew on that deployment. But still, you know, they were my bros, my brothers, and, and I felt like I fit in, and they, they treated me equally. And, you know, they, they kind of knew <laughs> not to mess with me, but we would, you know, sass each other in a professional brother-sister kind of way. So it was great. Loved them.
0: That's awesome. How quickly after you completed all your training, did you head out on your deployment
1: so I I got my wings in 2005 and I deployed in 2008 so it felt like too long but it was still you know you still even after you get to your combat aircraft you still have to do workups and train for the actual deployment because we we work on close air support during OEF and aren't overwatch and there's a lot of training that needs to be done before you can go they call it spinning up if you will.
0: That makes sense you think that the training's done when you get your wings but there's still more training to do.
1: It it is never done right? (laughs) Yeah we're always training always learning tactics I mean yeah this is it's a profession where if you are tired of school or you're tired of learning, that job is not for you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's good to know. I think people need to know that if they're going to go into it, that there's a lot of learning and a lot of change that continually happens that you have to keep working and learning. Absolutely. What was your deployment like? You said in the bio that you went on over 100 combat missions. So is it pretty high ops tempo? So got there in January. And
1: so January in Afghanistan's in at Bagram anyways was cold and snowy. So things were a little bit wider than maybe you would expect. But as the winter turns to spring and the spring turns to summer, we kinda joked that the hotter the weather, the more intense fighting there would be. So that's kind of exactly what would what happened was as we started getting closer to summer, there were more fights, more engagements. You know, it was more active. Yeah. So started off slow and, and kind of ramped up from there.
0: And do you have any memories or missions that you remember that you could share with us? Oh, sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I I have lots. You know, there there were missions where we would brief and go out and it would be absolutely quiet. And it was something that we would call NSTR, which means nothing significant to report. And then there were some missions where we would come back Winchester, which means we only had guns left on our airplane. Uh, all of our bombs were gone. And then there were some missions where we wouldn't go kinetic at all, but that vividly stick out in my mind because because the the reactions that we had from the troops that were on the ground. So one example of that would be we were called to support this convoy that had been out for a multi-day mission. And they were heading back to their isolated base somewhere in Afghanistan. So they were, if you can imagine, just beat up, dirty, tired. They were... You know, hit multiple times, ambushed, and they basically were just—they had lost of motivation. Which you can, you know, that's very justifiable. And so we're we're overhead and we're just circling around. We're using our sensors and we're we're looking ahead at the convoy and making sure you know there's not people planting IEDs or just kind of searching around, making sure any potential ambush sites were clear, plus the sound of our jets usually uh, make people scatter. So you, as you can imagine, too, you know, you hear a, a sigh of relief come over the convoy as we're, you know, armed overwatch, and we're protecting overhead. So the jet noise really comes in handy sometimes. But we don't have unlimited fuel. And there was a point where we, we did have to leave them. And, and you feel so bad. You know, we're, we're pretty safe in the cockpit. And personally, I just, I felt terrible leaving those, those guys and cows all the time because, you know, they still had miles to go before getting to their base. And we decided as a crew that we were going to, try to pump them up a little bit so we we asked them if we could do a low pass over the convoy and they said oh yes (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so we we dove down we uh, originally started probably about 18,000 feet and we Dove down to about a thousand feet above the ground, and we came up from behind, so to speak, and flew right over the convoy, rocking our wings. And as you can imagine, that's a lot of a lot of sound, but also the sound of freedom. And every guy that had a radio seemed to get on the radio, and we would just hear cheering. You know, we told them to be safe, and we heard the resounding Wilco's throughout the line of the convoy. It was just so great to hear. And it just stuck with me and felt so good that, you know, we could just do whatever we could, which was using our loud sounds to to make them feel better and to maybe pep them up a little bit so they can make it to their base.
0: And now a word from our sponsor. Do you want to lose weight but feel like you don't have enough time to be healthy? Are you stressed about passing weigh-ins or your fitness test?
1: Hi, my name is Ashley McGee, and I'm a health coach for women in the military community. As a Navy woman myself, I know the unique challenges we face when trying to lose weight and get healthy. I offer one-on-one coaching to help you make small habit changes that will help you achieve big results. If you'd like to learn more, send me an email at admin at ashleymcgee.com, and I will reach
0: out to see if we're a fit. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, that's a really cool story. I was on a lot of convoys when I was in Afghanistan, and whenever we had, like, close air support, it was like, oh, we don't have to worry about anything. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, it, it was
1: uh, it was great. And, you know, people love to hear the stories of us dropping bombs, and, and those can be exciting, too. But that was a, a case of, you know, the, the non-kinetic, but still just really exciting. And I will say that, you know, some of the missions where we'd go out, and this is where, like, the guilty feelings come in of deployment, where you are sent to a, a tick, which is a troops in contact, and you just you can't get there fast enough, or you know you you have another mission that goes wrong and. You know, stuff just happens, and I don't know. Were you ever? Did you ever experience the uh, the fallen comrade ceremony?
0: I was really fortunate, and we didn't have anyone on our team that was lost.
1: That's that's great. We I can't tell you how many fallen comrade ceremonies I went to. Not for people in my squadron, but it was just something the base would do. We would all line up on Disney, and the coffins would pass by as they were getting loaded onto the aircraft that takes that would take them back to the US and it was just the worst feeling seeing the coffins go by because for me, you know, I put up again a lot of the self induced pressure that I felt because I felt like I had let them down, like it was my fault that I couldn't get my aircraft there fast enough to protect them, to save them from anything. And it's just that was that was the hardest part of deployment is feeling like you failed because you couldn't get your jet fast enough to the location where they needed you and you couldn't be that loud sound to scare away the bad guys from hurting your, your people.
0: Yeah, I we went to Bagram a lot for like refueling and whatever and to do some missions out of Bagram, but I never was there when that was happening. But I can imagine that would be so moving. I was, was on a tiny fob, so we only had, there was just the French and then like 100 American troops, so it wasn't a lot of people. That's, and you mentioned Disney, which people might be like, what is she talking about? Yeah. But Disney's the main, it's like a two mile road in Bagram where the main, the main drive where the defect is and some of the housing and where a lot of the main workspaces are. So just imagine of all the people standing there and watching. That would be really hard. It was. So did you face any other challenges while serving in the military? Oh, boy.
1: <laughs> Can of worms. Let's open them. <laughs> I did. So going back to flight school, you know, one of the other thing, one of the other challenges that I faced was an assault by an instructor. And it was, you know, as a 23-year-old, I thought it would... <laughs> Going to happen to me. Like, are you kidding me? And if you can picture, I, you know, this is my 23 year old brain. Like, I am not petite. I'm not small. I'm very strong, physically tall. I'm a bit of a, you know, she beast, if you will. And so I thought <laughs> that would never happen to me. Nobody would even think about it. And so when it did happen, it caught me completely off guard. And I was devastated from that. I, First of all, I couldn't believe that my tribe would, someone in my tribe would do that to me. I never told anyone because, again, I felt like, you know, I didn't want to stick out anymore. I didn't know if people would believe me. I didn't know if they would think that I was just saying this because I wanted to pass or, you know, Whatever the reasons are, you, you tend to do a lot of uh, self-talking and self-judging. And and it was, it sucked, let me just say that. But, you know, I just kind of felt like I would keep it to myself, but I wasn't going to, again, I wasn't going to quit. I was going to just keep going. I was dating a guy at the time, and so I, I told him, and... The first thing he said, and this is really bad. The first thing he said to me after I told him what had happened was, what were you wearing? And that crushed me too. Like, (laughs) one, it shouldn't matter. And two, I had just gotten done with a long flight. And so, you know, jeans and a sweatshirt, right? Like, nothing. And that regardless that shouldn't even matter but that was his reaction later he apologized and he said he was just angry I'm like okay but <laughs> I felt like I felt ashamed I guess too that that happened and it was really hard it just I mean it was terrible it it took an already difficult situation and it just slammed me against the ground and I hit rock bottom.
0: Do you you think uh, the way that he reacted kind of further instilled the fact that you didn't want to report it because he kind of validated the negative self-talk that you were already telling yourself and then you told him?
1: Yeah, yep, for sure. You know, we have a saying in the Air Force or I guess in all of aviation where try to fly under the radar and that was me. Like I already felt like I stuck out enough as it was and I didn't need something else like this to make it worse. And, you know, you'd hear rumors of students and instructors either hooking up or getting special treatments or whatever. And I just did not want to be that person at all, whether those rumors were true or not, you know, my brain thought, Oh, those were definitely true. And I didn't want to be that person. And at the same time, the Academy was going through their sexual assaults issues that they were having that was publicly broadcast and I'm like oh my god I can't be another number I'm like I'm just gonna bury this and move on and and so I did you know I shoved it down deep down as I could and I moved on I moved out of that squadron I never talked never looked at him again it's he he wasn't even one of my instructors he was in the other aircraft but I just moved on, ignored him, <laughs> went to another squadron. And uh, I'll tell you a quick story. In this squadron, it was after we got our air- aircraft, I think it was. And so they, they do this big ceremony where, you know, you you give your top choices of the airplanes that you want. And then at the ceremony, they tell you what you got. And I was super pumped up because I got my first choice. And uh, for the record, as as bad as I make myself sound on this podcast during flight school, I ended up graduating like three out of 13 in my class. So I wasn't a terrible uh, wizo by any means. I just, you know, it's a lot of that self-pressure that we want to excel and, and be the best that we can be. So anyways, at at this night, you know, we're at the Squadron Bar and there's a few of us left and we're kind of drinking, having a good time. but. I'm not, I, you know, still sober because after what happened before, I decided that, you know, I would absolutely limit the amount of beverages and I'd rather just be the, the watcher, if you will. Anyways, so we're at this thing. And, and again, another instructor turns to me and we're wearing flight suits. So flight suit, if you can picture it, has zippers everywhere, which is awesome right? You can put stuff in those pockets. Well, there's some zippers that go right down your chest and they call them speed breaks. So my speed breaks, the end of the zipper was sticking out and this, which lands right by my chest. And the instructor flicks my zipper and says, speed break out. And on the outside, I kept a very stoic face And then the inside, I was a volcano that was exploding with rage for the fact that he thought that was okay. And I was so angry. But again, I didn't say anything because I was so close to being done and I just had to get out of there. But I remember going to my car and sitting there and making a deal with myself that I would never let anything like that happen to me again, regardless of whether I felt like I was going to get in trouble or stand out or cause more paperwork or whatever the case may be. I'm like, nope, never again. That's it. And and so I did. I made that promise to myself. And that promise eventually expanded beyond myself. And I started saying things when... People would say stuff about other females. So, you know, the military were a minority, right? There's, there's not a whole lot of women in the military, anyways. And so when one does show up, you know, you'd you often hear that a chick was coming to the squadron. Like you knew, you knew when they were coming because there's so few of them. And sometimes people like to talk rumors and, and like, oh, so and so did this. And regardless, It doesn't matter. And so I would start, you know, sticking up for them saying, well, how do you know that's true? Well, where'd you hear that from? And just trying to give these gals the benefit of the doubt or at least a clean slate or whatever, you know, and stick up for them. And it just kind of continued on. And uh, I would uh, do my best to, you know, make sure that didn't happen to anybody else because it was not okay Um, to the point where later on in my career, I became, for a few years, I did interviews for the Air Force Academy. Uh, (laughs) And after the interview was over, after, you know, we were all done, I would look at the young lady and say something like, You never have to do anything because somebody outranks you or somebody's your instructor. You always can say no, no matter what. I'm like, and you can always call me and I will help you. Like you don't have to, you don't have to let people walk all over you or do something to you you don't want to be done.
0: Yeah, that's really important. And that's, you took something that was really horrible and you made it into something that you could have a positive impact and impact those who step behind you. Just when you were sharing the story, I was like, oh yeah, whenever a new girl, even, and I was in civil engineering, a new girl showed up, there would be all kinds of rumors and stories, and I never really thought about that, but it's true. Like, it didn't matter where you were, because we are. Women are not as common in the military, and when they showed up there'd be all these stories I know I can't even imagine what people said about me and that.
1: yeah exactly and it's like okay can we just stop just shut it please like give right. them a chance give them a chance you know so yeah that was and that's you know unfortunately or fortunately that's one of the topics that I talk about with Athena's voice is is that assault that happened and the more i share it the more it amazes me that it's not just women you know and it's not just military it's it's men too and i am shocked by the amount of men that tell me that they were assaulted too i just couldn't believe it i mean it's unfortunate it really is but i think that's you know one of the reasons that i decided to talk about this and it, it took me it took me 15 years to talk about this 15 years. So it's only been recently that I've, I've been sharing this story because I, I don't want it to happen to other people. And I have my own kids. Now I have a son, I have a daughter, and you know, before these these men started telling me it happened to them, I was I was really only thinking of my daughter, like I don't want this to happen to her at all. Like I will destroy anyone that does that to her, right? That protective yeah. mother thing. But then I started thinking about my son. It's like, oh geez, well, I will I too will destroy anyone that does anything like that to him. But let's let's even back it up and not get to this destroying of people part let's get to the we're gonna stop this from happening because it's just it's not okay
0: right yeah I have two boys and I think it's so important that you're speaking out because like that then other people have the confidence to speak out and share their experience and we can't know what we don't know unless people are brave enough to speak up and then it encourages other people to share their experiences so yeah. in the bio, you mentioned that you're a military spouse. So I'm curious about how you met your husband. Remember that boyfriend that I
1: talked about? The one that was that asked,
0: yeah. oh, what are you wearing? What were you wearing?
1: <laughs> yeah, I married that guy. <laughs> <laughs> but so it it is, you know, it is a happy middle. We'll call it middle because it's not an ending to that story. But you know, later he apologized. And he's like, I was just mad. He's like, that was not okay for me to say. He's like, I will help you, you know, what, I will help you get through this. And he did. And he was a rock and he was so supportive. And that has never changed. And so I met him in flight school. He was a Navy guy. And that was not what I wanted out of flight school. But we we ended up dating and dated for a very long time. And we ended up getting married in 2007, so right before... Uh, my deployment and you know we've been we've been together and he's been just an amazing husband And as hard it is hard as it is to be married to another military member let alone a different service member it's been it's been good it's been an adventure for us we've had our highs and lows just like any marriage during my deployment in 2008 he came out with his squadron several months into my deployment And so I got to see him there, which was more than I saw him in the U.S. because I was stationed on the East Coast, he was stationed on the West Coast. And so we never saw each other. And so it was actually kind of nice that we saw each other there. And it was kind of a a joke in both of our squadrons that that was our our home of residence. That's where we lived together. Even though we technically did not live together on Bagram, we were stationed there at the same time. We had our one-year anniversary there, which was great. And we even got to fly some missions together. So in the same stack, if you will. So different altitudes. But we got to fly in the same piece of sky and help out some of the same missions, which is uh, pretty awesome.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. And so... You guys got married, and you did your deployments, and you guys got to see each other in Afghanistan. And then at what point did you decide to switch from active duty to the reserves? Um, So after my deployment, I had an opportunity to take an assignment to
1: where he was stationed. And they had a small uh, squadron of Air Force folks that could fly in the prowler with the Navy. So it was, I think, the Air Force's way to kind of get into that electronic warfare world. So naturally, that was, you know, the perfect assignment that we could both be stationed at the same base. But lo and behold, turns out when you live with your husband, life happens and you can't really stop it. So I remember I was doing workups for my upcoming deployment and I was carrier based, which is also very interesting for an Air Force person. I never thought I'd be on a carrier. I have mad respect for carrier operations now because that is a pretty intense place but I just I had this weird feeling and like I couldn't quite shake it and it turns out that I was pregnant and it was an unplanned pregnancy and I was I was devastated I remember you know I I try never to cry in uniform however it does happen sometimes and I feel like that was one of those times so scared (laughs) to tell my skipper that I was pregnant and I wasn't crying, but I sure felt like it. And so he was so awesome about it though. He, I think had three daughters of his own and he was like, you know, Siren, he's like, this is a good thing. And I'm like, okay, this is a good thing. But I felt like <laughs> a 16 year old telling my dad, I'm pregnant. <laughs> uh, because I know that takes away, you know, from their numbers and their manning. And he was just so awesome about it. And I will never forget that. And it, it turned out to be a good thing. And I was scared. I was not ready to be a mom yet. Uh, so I I remained on active duty for a bit after my son was born. Ended up staying on active duty for a little bit longer, having a second child. And while I was pregnant with number two, that was when I had to make the, the decision to either stay in or go into the reserves. And kids can definitely throw you off the vector that you think you're on. Uh, for sure. You know, I had planned that I was going to be a squadron commander and I was going to have this great 20 year active duty career and be with my husband the whole time, right? Like all these lofty dreams. But when I got my assignment, I was given something out of state away from my husband. And here I am about to have two kids. And so it was a really tough decision. You know, do I stay in the military? Take my kids with me, hire a full-time nanny because you know that's what you need, right? Being a single mm-hmm. parent in the military with two babies, there's no other way to do it. Leave my husband and then we just you know, kind of do that and do the long distance thing. Or do I get out and be with my husband while he's around and raise my two kids? And you know, being a stay-at-home mom did not appeal to me at all. It really scared me toughest job ever, by the way, (laughs) (laughs) Um, because I still felt like I was called to serve. And so the reserves for me was, was the answer. And so I applied and I I got a job and, and it's been awesome that I've been able to continue my military career. Uh, I I still got promoted, which is great. I felt so blessed to get promoted in the reserves. You know, I, I get to wear so many hats now. I get to be a mom and I Got to be with my kids and watch them for per- take their first steps. Where my husband missed that stuff because he was on a ten month deployment. I get to be in the reserves and wear that hat and still serve. And you know, <laughs> for better for worse, leave my kids for a few weeks with my husband, which I like to call mommy appreciation time, <laughs> um, and enjoy you know being an adult and, and zipping up the flight suit again when wearing a uniform. And then on top of that, I get to be a small business owner and get to explore that realm and empower that passion that I've had for so long of training people and trying helping people become healthier and stronger. And it's just, it's been a blessing. And I never thought that this would be the path that I would be on, but it as as turned out great and i'm super proud of my family and and all the things that we've done together
0: that's really cool and that's awesome that you were able to continue to serve through the reserves and be there for your family cuz especially dual military i feel like when you're both in and you're you don't have kids it's inconvenient to be separated but you both understand what you're going through and why you're doing what you do and so it makes it it makes the inconveniences i guess worth it or easy Easier to overcome, but when we had kids, it was kind of like, ah, oh, this feels really complicated. Like you said, when if you get stationed separated, you have to have a full-time nanny to take care of your kids. And-
1: yeah, it's it's weird how kids complicate things. They're so so small, but
0: so complicated. <laughs> <laughs> That's really true. That's really true. Well, I really loved getting to hear more of your story, and it's just been really powerful. And thank you for being so honest and willing to share those hard experiences. I think that people will learn from it and they can either have the bravery to stand up and share their story or if they're struggling, now they know that there's someone they can talk to if they need to, which is great. Yep. And my last question is, what would you tell young women who are considering joining the military? I would say,
1: I would say go for it. I think it's an amazing experience, opportunity, You can learn so much, and it's just such a small community. You kind of feel sometimes like you're part of a cool club uh, being in the military, and that if you do join, you know, that I I hope that nobody ever experiences, whether male or female, you know, what I went through and the assaults. But don't ever feel like you can't say anything to somebody. And then always let your work speak for itself. So, no matter what your job is, even if you're an airman basic and you have to scrub toilets, will you scrub those toilets and make them the shiniest they've ever been? Like, always do your best. Always try to learn something new. Never, never stop, never quit, never give up. And if you want something bad enough, go for it. And just realize that, you no, know, you are part of an awesome team, a team that you know, is stronger when people work together.
0: That's great advice. And thank you again. I really appreciated that you took time out of your busy schedule to, to talk to me and to share your story. So thank you. Absolutely, Amanda. Thanks so much for having me on. I love your podcast. And
1: I love the fact that you have this tool to share so many stories of women veterans uh, with the world. It's amazing. It's great people need to hear these stories because some people can tell some pretty good stories and appreciate what you're doing. It's awesome.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women of the Military. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing stories I have with women who have served in our military. Did you love the show? Don't forget to leave a review. Finally, if you are a woman who has served or is currently serving in the military, please email me at airmantomom@gmail.com at gmail.com so I can set you up to be on a future episode of Women of the Military.